Hey, Chris. Oh, hey, Tierney. Do you believe in the unexplained, the paranormal? Mm, no, not really. Okay. Uh, how about UFOs, flying saucers? Nope. Haven't seen one. How about close encounters? Have you seen that, Chris? Of the third kind? Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies. Released in November 1977 to critical acclaim and box office success, Steven Spielberg's science fiction masterpiece stars Richard Dreyfuss. Okay, okay, Chris, Chris, save it for the podcast. Podcast? Oh yeah, you mean the podcast where we watch and comment on all 137 minutes of Close Encounters of the Third Kind? That podcast? Yep. The podcast is called This Means Something and is now available wherever you download your podcasts. This This means means something. something. You've been transferred to personnel. To personnel? That's for assholes. I was in personnel for 10 years. Yeah. Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute. This is Trent, long time no speak. I'm here to introduce our review and audio commentary episode of The Enforcer. I'm not on it, but hey, you can't have everything. 1976 was a great year. Some of my favourite things to look back on, despite being around physically, but perhaps spiritually, that year were... God, jeez, now I'm really struggling. What one best picture that year? Was it... Network or something? That was a good film. Uh, What else? Um, Beach Boys had that horrible album, uh, 15 Big Ones. Uh, Station to Station, David Bowie, that was a good album. Oh, jeez, 1976, God. Might have to come back to you with that one. This is probably my favourite of the Dirty Harry sequels because, I don't know, there was something that kind of... There's a bit of darkness I felt in Magnum Force. I don't know what it was. I mean, you know, they're all dark films. They're about a, I won't say vigilante cop, but cop who swears vengeance on truth, justice, and the American way. Or is that truth, justice, and the American way? Uh, I, I really like the rapport and chemistry between uh, Clint Eastwood and Tyne Daly. You know, I mean, it's far-fetched. It's a James Bond film, really. It's it's a fantasy. I love the, um, you know, the hippies, uh, you know, the hippie terrorists. As always, the in the, anything shot in San Francisco in the 1970s, that beautiful sunlight they capture. Living in Melbourne, Australia, it's a very different light down here in the Southern Hemisphere. The one that... A lot of people who live in the Northern Hemisphere romanticise about, as we do down here. However, that Northern light to us is very, very special, and particularly with a beautiful vista like San Francisco on show, it's uh, fantastic. So, you know, that that's always sort of rung out to me, particularly the shots of Alcatraz towards the end of the film. Anyway, please enjoy the episode, and we'll talk later. Goodbye. Actually, Rocky. Rocky, that was a good film. Um, mm, um, mm. I know, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. That's probably my favourite film of that year. 
I assume there's a movies by minute on that, John. Hmm? So you can't even go to the canopies. San Francisco, sprawling, picturesque, dynamic, eighth largest cosmopolitan city in the United States. Like every big city, it has its share of crime and violence. San Francisco is the only city with a cop like Dirty Harry. Clint Eastwood is the enforcer. Harry's got a lady partner. This is a first for him. Now I want you very slowly to put down that weapon and then on the deck and spread your legs. Are you kidding me? Can I make a statement, McKay? Go ahead. The mouthful, she ain't making it. By the way, Inspector, how fast do you run 100? It's me. First, there was Dirty Harry. Then, Magnum Force. And now, Eastwood is back as the Enforcer. The dirtiest Harry of them all. Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute. This is your host, John, and today we have another very special episode. This is our review episode of the third Dirty Harry installment, The Enforcer. And joining me all the way over that Pacific Ocean and then a little bit further over land is Walt Murray, one part of the Wilder Ride Minute. Walt, welcome. Hey, Jay, how are you? I'm very good. More important, how are you at the time of recording? It's... The day after Christmas, and I think you've probably got a, a bellyache, yeah? <laughs> yeah, actually, the day after Thanksgiving, and uh, oh, sorry. yes. Yeah, it's, uh, and you were asking me earlier about the uh, Thanksgiving tradition. Yes, it is as big as everybody makes it out to be. Uh, every business shuts down, and everybody gears up for shopping the next day. But uh, yeah, we're all stuffed full of turkey and ham and mashed potatoes and all the great stuff that comes along with that. <laughs> So you had the big bird and the pig. <laughs> we did. Well, and this year was weird. You know, this is 2020 and it's mm. the year of COVID. So we didn't get to go see family like we usually do. Um, we all, and, and, you know, in 2020 style, um, I lost my mom this year. Uh, everything is shut down. So it's just been a nutty, nutty year this year. And so we, um, we just opted to stay home and, all the grandparents were good with that. Nobody wants to get COVID. <laughs> so uh, we, um, yeah, so we just had kind of a small family gathering and I probably got way too much food for us. So, um, but it was good, you know, and uh, good to take that time to spend with family and just to be thankful for what we have. I know in England, often at Christmas, it's a tradition for the whole country. One of the channels plays The Great Escape every Christmas without fail. Oh, yeah. Um, just like on New Year's Eve here, for some reason in Australia, that can't stop the music, the Village People movie with Steve oh, Gutenberg. That's yeah, always yeah. on, Channel 9. Yeah, <laughs> and um, that has uh, Bruce Jenner in it as well. Ah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I can't stand that movie, but I, I love I can't Bruce either. <laughs> I love the well, it's, it's one of those movies, if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. Just because it's so, um, you know... Uh, it's campy and it's weird and it's <laughs> terrible, but you can't stop watching. Yeah, I normally love roller skating all the time in all movies, but just <laughs> whenever it comes on, I turn the turn the TV off. Yeah, yeah. Was there once a tradition of watching any particular movie 
during Thanksgiving? Um, you know, in our family, we we've gotten into the the tradition of watching Christmas Vacation, right? And that has become a big one. Um, when I was a kid, I know there were a couple of movies that were always that always seemed to be on. Uh, a Wonderful Life was always mm-hmm. on, and um, but I I usually once the once we were done eating, I, I usually was outside playing football or something, and um, you know didn't have much of an interest in watching movies. But as I've gotten older, you know we had that tradition. But now with streaming. You know, all the kids seem to scatter to their own corners and watch what they want to watch, and then I'll kind of go watch what I want to watch. So uh, some of those traditions are starting yeah. to fade a little bit, and I kind of hate that. Well, what do you think, Walt? What do you think Dirty Harry Callahan would normally do on Thanksgiving? He'd just be alone in his apartment, or would he be busting the chief? Oh, give me a shift. I need to be. I, I, I would say he would be working. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think Dirty Harry took too many days off. And, uh, you know, he he wasn't a family man. Um, he was just kind of a rugged detective, and doing detective work is what he did. Um I, I can't really see him, like, volunteering at a food bank or anything like that. Um <laughs> So I my the picture in my mind is always of of Harry just working. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think he'd be yeah, he'd say put me on duty. Why why would you roster me off? It's Thanksgiving, Harry. What difference does it make? <laughs> maybe right. he maybe he'd take his gun to be cleaned on that day, but you're saying everything's closed on Thanksgiving, so Oh yeah, no, you're not going to find a gunsmith or a a pawn shop that's open uh, on Thanksgiving. Now, one thing uh, that I have found, and it's kind of a mixed thing for me, mm. is that I will find people at home on Thanksgiving. So if, if I'm a private investigator by trade, and if I need to really interview somebody, I'll take the file home with me and try to call them early Thanksgiving morning or or go by. But I try not to work on Thanksgiving. But it is a good time to find people. Because wow. they're either going to be with family or be at home. So, um, yeah, a little trick of the trade there. So I could see uh, I could see Harry out trying to grab a fugitive or um, trying to get an interview in. So, what's the opposite? What 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 time of the year do you avoid to track someone down? If Thanksgiving is a good time, what's the? Is there an opposite? Um, you know. Really, probably any yeah. Friday nights are not great. Um, weekends are are kind of spotty because you don't know if people are going to go out of town or go to the lake or go to yep. grandma's house. Um, and so yeah, those are probably bad days. Fourth of July in America mm. is usually a bad one. That's our Independence Day, oh, yeah. and people go to the beach, people go out of town. So that's always one I'd recommend that we don't do much on. And um, so that's probably our worst holiday for people being around the house. Speaking of your Independence Day, that was in 1776, wasn't it? It was. Yep, July 4th. 200 years before The Enforcer came out. <laughs> that's right. And there are actually, uh, it's interesting, with this movie being in that year, in the in 1976, I remember 1976 pretty vividly because of that. You were alive then, Walt? You were alive in 76? <laughs> Yes, I was I was eight years old. I was born in nineteen sixty eight. So wow. I'm I'm an old timer. 
even before the first Harry. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I predate the original Dirty Harry. I'm born 83, so I'm Sudden Impact is my... That's, that okay. came out the yeah. year I was born, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. So it's... Um, in the in the Dirty Harry timeline, that was a, that was a good year to be born. Now, Walt, do you have a favorite Dirty Harry apart from, of course, the original? Do you where does the, where does the Enforcer lie? What's oh, your man. machete order? Um, <laughs> so, wow. Okay, so the 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 original is my favorite. Of course. Um, man, gosh. I should have been prepared for that question. <laughs> well, do you like suspects' rights and the first one? You know, the law breaking the laws, the first movie, the best one. That is the best one. Yeah. Vigilantes, cops, even taking the law into their own hands. That's pretty good. Yeah, and, third and, one, and that is an actual, that is actually a good movie. Um, yeah, but really I, good. I put The Enforcer just a little bit ahead of that second one. Really? Um, I do. And I, I think, yeah. You know, and if you catch me on a on another day, I might flip him back around. But I, I the reason I put the enforcer ahead mm. is it's just a little bit more believable. Um, I mean, I know that there are corrupt cops and all that, but um, <laughs> I, but I, I just I like the enforcer. I like the way it goes. I I, I love the interaction between Harry and Tyne Daly. And I think that that chemistry is really, really good. I like her character development. Um, and, and two, you know, when you, we look back on it with 2020 eyes, it's kind of hard to think of a time when women weren't riding in patrol cars and weren't working just like men were as police officers. But I remember all that. I remember when my dad got his first female partner as an FBI agent. And wow. that wasn't until... Gosh, about 1984, 85. Not to dob your dad in, but was your dad positive about it or was he incredulous or was he? So my dad has some dirty hairy in him. Oh. Um, <laughs> he, he was. So he originally, I remember him coming home and talking about it and saying, I've, I've gotten a new partner and, um, you know, we'll just have to see how, how it goes. Well, she was an ex-Marine. And she was a no-nonsense uh, agent. I loved her. Our, our whole family loved her. She was great. And we still stay in touch with her. Um, and my dad looks back at her as one of his best partners. She, The way I actually met her was on my dad's birthday. She came and tried to steal his car out of the driveway and set the alarm off. <laughs> as a prank. As a prank. Yeah, yeah right. as a prank. So she comes and tries to steal the car. So the alarm goes off, and my dad goes bolting out of the house with his gun in his boxer shorts. <laughs> and she's like, no, George, no, it's me, it's me. So the whole family's out in the yard. We're just dying laughing. And uh, and we were like, yeah, this is going to be a good match. <laughs> she She's going to be able to, to take care of him pretty well. So um, she, she was always you know, a, a super smart agent. She had a master's degree. She was tough. You know, she could fight if she had to. Did she start, did she start in personnel or, rec or records? Like, like, uh, inspector Moore does. <laughs> no, but if she had gone in a few years earlier, she would have, um, she'd have worked her way up through this, probably through the steno pool, the stenographer pool. Um, so it's probably a big, the very big difference between 1971 to 76 and a, that short number of years, a lot of, a lot of great changes, uh, took place. Absolutely. I would think. Absolutely. And in the U S those changes came, uh, 
you know, from my recollection, they came pretty fast. It probably to the people involved in it didn't seem like it was that fast, but I I remember my dad's attitude changing really quickly and the other agents as well um, because they were hiring, you know, female agents who were really good at what they did. They were coming out of the military. They were coming, some of them out of police departments where they may not have been on patrol, but they were working in, um, you know, some sort of investigation. They were, you know, doing uh, some sort of administration that prepared them to do the work of an FBI agent. So I, I think that the the high quality of employee that they were bringing in and how hard some of them worked was just uh, really amazing. So, uh so J. Edgar Hoover's bureau went away pretty quick on, <laughs> on things like that um, when uh, those female agents started coming in. And, in fact, there were several married uh, FBI agent couples uh, around. So some of them were really uh, top flight. Uh, well, every one of them that I know except one was was really fantastic. So, um, But, yeah, the... But I think that was the best thing for my dad was to be partners with a female agent who was really that good and uh, really proved herself very, very, very quickly. You have you have pretty much just described this 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 lady Georgia as exactly like Inspector Moore, played by Tyne Daly in this movie. She really proves herself, and um, that's one of the best things about this movie. Um, is just the is just we'll go into it a little bit. Uh, in the future about how the script came about. But, um, yeah, she's really good Tyne Daly in this movie, isn't she, Walt? She is. And, you know, she's played police officers in other TV shows and movies. I think that that is a, a bit of a niche for her, but she has that mix of of tough street cop, but also has that femininity to her that serves her well in that time period, if, if that makes sense, that she maintains that strong female presence, but is still a very good police officer. And I think that's what Harry recognizes with her pretty quickly. And, and she even handles herself pretty well with him in that initial interview. You know, <laughs> she shoots right ass. back at him. That's right. And, and he comes back with a very good response to it, too, of, yeah, but it's not, not just yours, but it's your partner as well. But I like that interaction between the two of them. And, and she handles herself great in the barber shop. I mean, she, her, her character really is a great person. And Tyne Daly plays it just to a T. In the summer of 1976, Eastwood returned to the streets of San Francisco. He's completing the trio of Dirty Harry films, the final ones called The Enforcer. On the set, he's able to switch from the lethal and laconic detective to his usual sunny self with ease. His bonhomie is legendary among the production team. Working in a parking lot gives you a lot of experience with this sort of thing. You just... normal San Francisco driver on Saturday night. I, uh, driving his limousine back to the Villa Roma. <laughs> Although he chooses not to direct the picture, he owns it. He's appointed Jim Fargo, his assistant on Josie Wales, as director, but he still brings his power and his instinct to bear, especially when the script is too wordy. See, the whole thing just goes on and on and on for stuff that doesn't... Yeah, the main thing is oh, no, he I agree, back, you can dump all this. What does, he, what does he want? He wants a car. We'll give him one. Yeah, this is kind of like the... A mini uh, Here. Uganda Uganda raid, see? 
Most film stars know when they've delivered a line right. With his experience behind the camera, Eastwood knows how to time an action right. And for that reason, he very often does his own stunts. In The Enforcer, the stuntman may be paid to fall through the skylight, but the star isn't. He approaches the prospect cautiously. He just grazed the bed, he never really hit it. Didn't he? He got out so far. How much further do you want to go? Is he all right? Yeah, he's all right. Square it up. Where they're putting the camera... This side here I know is going to follow him in. Pick it out before you go. I don't think that'll go. I think that'll go. I think that'll stay there, yeah. Yeah. And it could hit him on the noggin, and it's heavy. It really is heavy. If I were going to jump through there, I'd kick that stuff out. I would just forget this camera and and, uh, shoot this shot later when you're down more and you can have me drop in with the pieces there. I'd rather not drop in on the pieces. Those pieces there? Yeah. Well, let's not do it then. But you can set another camera in here where you're down towards everything, and we can just jump in next to it. Uh, Maybe a little lesser of the jump. I'd like to read out a review we've received from one of our listeners, Tim Hands of the UK, who wrote, The Enforcer is a good worthy addition to the Dirty Harry series, but it lacks the magnificence and splendour of the superior first two movies. It has more of a televisual, made-for-TV movie of the week look to it, The premise of the movie is intriguing, Harry taking on a terrorist group, but director James Fargo's inexperience lacks energy in the direction. The best thing about the film is Harry being given a female partner in the form of Tyne Daly, who is terrific. The score by Jerry Fielding is adequate and does its job, but I can't help feeling it misses Lalo Schifrin, and the continuity he brought to the first two instalments. A fair effort by a first-time director, but it is a step down from the classics of Dirty Harry and Magnum Force. Thanks for sending in that review, Tim. We're ready. Inspector Moore is one of the first ever sex in the whole country to become a full-time homicide investigator. And we are very proud of her stunning professionalism. All right. Thank you, boys. Thank you very much. It's March 1976, and actor-director Clint Eastwood is about to board a plane to the Philippines to star in a movie directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, Clint chose not to do Apocalypse Now. Instead, he elected to stay a little closer to home and to stick to more well-trodden territory for his next film, The Enforcer, a second sequel to Dirty Harry. The actor's first quantifiable classic, The Outlaw Josie Wales, had been released the previous October. Relatively cheap, though profitable, it would take some years to rise in critical esteem. In the meantime, Eastwood was keen, as always, to move on to the next project, and maybe something a little more profitable 
Much has been made of the director's one for you, one for me private agreement with Warner Brothers. That is, allowing the megastar to alternate more personal films with more surefire popcorn hits. Let me do the outlaw Josie Wales, perhaps, and I'll do another Harry. The truth of the matter is, Warner's has never turned down a project floated by the actor. Moreover, Eastwood was already a multi-millionaire by the 1970s and had no reason to negotiate with Warner's like this. He chose to make another Dirty Harry because he, not the studio, wanted to make easy money. Enter, magically at Clint's fingertips, a script submitted by two film students entitled Moving Target. The treatment pitted Harry Callahan against the violent terrorist group who had stolen military-grade weapons and kidnapped the Frisco mayor. Inspired by a mixture of Charlie Manson's The Family and the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, Eastwood instantly fell for the outline. The actor was particularly attracted to the portrayal of black militants, and also appreciated the topical links to the SLA and other South American-style urban guerrilla movements of the time, whose leaders were often inspired by in-prison visits by priests with revolutionary sympathies. In the name of God, man, this is a church. What are you doing? I'm a police officer. This man's under arrest. Father, help me. I wasn't doing a damn thing. This guy's just roasting me. Would it be asking too much to see some credentials, officer? This guy runs like a rabbit. I'm not about to let him go. I'd like to see the credentials right now. You insist. Callahan, Inspector. Well, Callahan, I think you're a disgrace to this city. Okay, nobody move! By the late 1970s, terrorists had become the convenient and generic bad guys in action movies. There had already been the Skyjackers in Magnum Force, remember, and the film network of the same year would also feature a guerrilla group, the Ecumenical Liberation Army, who negotiated their own primetime television program, the Mao Zedong Hour, in return for a release of a kidnapped heiress. The trope, of course, would later reach its highest watermark and apogee in the original Die Hard film. Action movies don't normally require sophisticated plots but they at least have a compelling bad guy. Clint, recognising this deficiency in the script, asked the students to revise their work. Reportedly, the two then turned in a script even less filmable, on his kind of budget at least, perhaps. So the actor then turned to screenwriter Sterling Sullivan, then screenwriter to his mentor Don Siegel, who either already had his own Dirty Harry script in train, or was soon to get started. Siliphant knew the tropes required of a Harry Callahan vehicle. Harry would once again find himself fed up with the ass-covering ineptitude of his superiors, the higher-ups more concerned with image 
than they were with cleaning up the streets. If audiences were already aware of Harry's famous impatience, now they'd find it turned up to 11. The third Dirty Harry would be the first instalment to squarely direct itself against the 70s managerial class. Did you tell them about the meeting? What meeting? The meeting right here in your office two months ago when you said high priority was run these hoods out of San Francisco. I never said they used violence. Well, what'd you want me to do? Yell trick-or-treat at them? Come on, Harry. To square off against the latest piety, feminism, Harry would be paired with an unpalatable partner, a woman. In fact, this was the entire thrust of Siliphant's script, called Harry and More. Siliphant merged his script with that of Moving Target, and delivered the result to Malpasso in February of 1976. Clint, still smarting from the negative reaction to his romantic movie Breezy, and unsure if he could direct romance, let alone act it, reserved judgement. For if the story focused too much on the partnering of different genders, then he'd have to at least explore the possibility of romance between the two main characters. Clint accordingly called in old script doctor Dean Reisner to add the, quote, bread and butter Harry stuff, end quote. Reisner probably wrote the rooftop chase and the liquor store robbery. The latter would be a poor facsimile of the skyjacking scene in Magnum Force, let alone the original bank robbery of the first film, but would be a comfortable bit of action for the hardcore fans. Reisner again permitted the audience to revel in Harry's world of wretched excess, low humour, outrageously violent behaviour, and heightened action well beyond reality for a police inspector. With these elements in place, Malpasso was content they had a workable script for beginning. Tyne Daly had just been hired for a bit part in Telephone, and was reportedly suggested by Silphant himself for the main female role. Daly insisted the characters never fall in love, and that Harry allow her character to kill at least one bad guy. Clint, quote, It starts out like great love should. It starts out by earning respect, and she earns his respect, and you think, it could be, could go another step. The press would lightly praise Eastwood for abandoning his ego in casting such a strong female actress in a Dirty Harry film. Okay. Now I want you very slowly to put down that weapon and then on the deck and spread your legs. (laughs) Are you kidding me? You laugh at me, you bastard, and I'll shoot you where you stand. All this script activity meant that The Enforcer would be one of the most written and rewritten scripts Clint Eastwood ever tolerated. Production of Dirty Harry 3, working title of the film, 
began in June of 1976. After butting heads with director Ted Post on the set of Magnum Force, Eastwood had initially intended to direct the film himself, but he was unexpectedly busy with post-production on the outlaw Josie Wales, which he had not planned on directing. Instead, he promoted his assistant director, James Fargo, to the director role on a bargain basement salary. With Clint, if you stay loyal, you work every show, explained Fargo. You are guaranteed X number of hours, usually slightly above scale, but not a lot above. You may not make as much money on one show as someone else, but if you play the game, you keep working. I got scale on the Enforcer, 100 grand for a guarantee of 10 weeks. On the one hand, you're grateful, and on the other, you just have to bite your lip. By all reports, filming on location was a breeze, and because of Clint's preoccupation with his new romance, Sandra Locke, filming was a rare occasion where the 46-year-old wasn't impatient at all. For Clint had rented apartments in San Francisco and Salzolito with his new beau, and this all contributed to his ease and good humour on screen. In light of this relaxed state, Clint even permitted the crew to improvise a scene at a bar between Harry and Inspector Moore. Clint thought Fargo did a good job with the humorous repartee between him and Tyne Daly, but the scene was judged a little rough for inclusion in the film and was nixed. What do you want to be a cop for anyway? Why aren't you married and having kids like everybody else? Why aren't you? Nobody in their right mind's asking. When the movie was released in December, it was a great success. The most popular Harry installment with the audience going public yet. Even Pauline Kale praised the addition of Tyne Daly to what she thought was a tired formula even when the original film was released five years earlier. A chorus of critics were in praise of Inspector Moore's witty back and forth with Harry. Here was a dedicated, intelligent rookie who stood up for herself and was even willing to learn from Harry which his own superiors weren't. Well, Officer Moore, maybe you'll tell us all here about your most important felony arrest. I've never made a felony arrest. Well, maybe you'll tell us about your best misdemeanor arrest then. I've never made a misdemeanor arrest either. Then what the hell gives you the right to become an inspector when there's men have been out there on the street for 10 or 15 years? The woman's place is in the home. Is that what you're trying to say? What do you think this is, some kind of encounter group? I want to know what Officer Moore is going to do when somebody points a gun at her and says, hit the deck, you son of a bitch. You're just deliberately trying to fail this candidate, aren't you, Callahan? Well, if she fails out there, she gets her ass blown off. It's my ass. And uh, my hard luck. This was all a welcome development from the usual trope of a woman being there only to be rescued. Tyne Daly actually saves Harry's life twice, once in the church and a second time on Alcatraz. In the following movie, The Gauntlet, Eastwood would even have a more strident woman take the lead. While to ultra-modern audiences it may be disappointing that Inspector Moore has to work twice as hard 
and to die as a man to prove herself as a cop. But remember, it is 1976. One doesn't have to look too closely to see her character occasionally doing, quote, dumb female things, not finding her gun or badge in her purse, and having to run with her arms flapping in clunky 70s shoes. As already discussed, these moments could have been ironed out and contrasted against other characterization if there had have been more Harry and Moore in the final product on screen. To appeal to the Dirty Harry heads, the movie does at times resign itself to a quote, one-note comedy of encumbrance. Other critics explained away the Enforcer's popularity with its shameless aping of the first film. Again, the villains are the right's version of left-wing criminals. And again, the villains are positively cartoonish. But whereas Scorpio was cartoonish, he was also dynamic and engaging. The People's Revolutionary Strike Force are barely better than the 'er ne'er-do-wells in Clint's later Pink Cadillac, almost as one note as the Black Widows in his first ape movie a couple of years later. The principal antagonist, Bobby Maxwell, is little more than a small cult leader and given no space to breathe. As one reviewer said, we are led to believe he is a homicidal madman simply because his jaws quiver when he stabs people. The voice of the man who called with the ransom note tip was put on tape. The voice belongs to the leader of a clandestine terrorist group known as the AVON. Avon? Ding dong! The Allied Violent Defense Network. Could we kill the lights, please? Keep that gun in your holster, hammer! This is the leader of the group, Weird Willard Luxley. Luxley's family was so certain their son would turn out rotten, they put him up for adoption three years before he was born. Lastly, we have former member Kurt Krugel, a despicable pervert. First arrested five years ago for making love to a fire hydrant. If you want to see Harry inveighing against liberal bureaucrats again, then welcome to The Enforcer, though you may find the inspector less fuming and more grumpy. Captain, you want to jerk all these people off, you can, but don't do it with me. That's it, Callahan. You just got yourself a 60-day suspension. Make it 90. 180. Give me your star. There's a seven-point suppository, Captain. What did you say? I said, stick it in your ass. Feminism is just the latest kind of conspiracy foisted on Harry's common sense. Quote, Harry is the same barroom drunk railing against weirdos and pinkos four or five glasses further into his only theme. Whereas the earlier films explored the political and personal tensions of being a modern lawman and could at least pretend to be politically ambiguous. The third movie simplifies it all to the point of crudity. It's a war, isn't it? Linguini's wife puts it in black and white. 
Magnum Force, the previous instalment, increased the audience's glimpse into Harry Callahan's private world. Here, it has turned its back, and his character flatlines. He sheds no real tears at DiGiorgio's death. Harry can now be called, quote, a jerk who carries a gun, interrogates people, gets names, and punches people. As mayor of San Francisco, I want to make it official. This is one hell of a cop. San Francisco's finest. Run, jive-ass bastard! The descriptor's sleazy, or nasty, might seem a little harsh on the film, but they do seem accurate right after you've heard Harry mutter, you fucking fruit, at Bobby Maxwell. Harry's casual prejudice is also more than a little concerning. Not at all in jest like the first film. What about the punk? You mean the suspect? Suspect my ass. For your information, Callahan, the minority community's just about had it with this kind of police work. By the minority community, I suppose you're talking about the hoods. It so happens they are American citizens too. Janet Maslin of Newsweek opined the loss of the quote charismatic single-mindedness of Inspector Harry Callahan. All the righteous indignation of the Inspector built up in the first films are ignored in The Enforcer in favour of the mayhem his methods create. Harry has begun to look like a trigger-happy fool. Gone was this engaging suggestion that our hero might be sinking to the depths of his antagonist's sociopathy. Harry was now just a grumpy outsider. And if Harry is now just a cop, then he has also become an unbelievable cop. Quote, Blowing people's heads off and creating the kind of havoc even Batman would find juvenile. Roger Ebert wasn't the only critic to point out the ludicrousness of Harry still being on the force after all these transgressions. Uh, Callahan, you're on the wrong side. How do you figure that? You go out there and put your ass on the line for a bunch of dudes who wouldn't even let you in the front door any more than they would me. I'm not doing it for them. Who then? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. (laughs) To modern audiences, There's a lot of talking in this actioner, and although there are a few chuckles, there are not a lot of thrills or suspenseful scenes like the first two movies. An action film can sometimes succeed without a plot, without good acting, even without good characters, but not without all three. At the very least, it needs a great climax. The ending of the movie on Alcatraz An inspired location, and one of the first uses of it on celluloid, is a wet fart, to quote one wit, with no real gunplay suspense or novel standoff. Callahan, Callahan, God, you saved my life. I'll never be able to thank you. I'll never be able to to tell you. There'll be a a letter of commendation there for you, don't you worry, I'll take good care. The movie looks noticeably cheaper than its predecessors. 
The scoring seems like a television type job. Scorer Jerry Fielding was clearly stretched thin in 76, with Bad News Bears, Outlaw Josie Wales and this all in the same year. Also, fans wonder whether the script isn't a little unworthy to bring back both Harry Gardino and John Mitchum. Rekindle a little magic of the first movie, these fond characters do not, because they have nothing to do. What about me? I'm your partner. I may have to move fast, and I don't need too much linguine to hold me back. You've got a lot of class, Harry. Harry, do me a favor. Go easy on her, huh? It's our first day, and it's been a damn long one. Look, she wants to play lumberjack. She's going to have to learn to handle her into the log. One positive of the movie is at least it gets back to exploring San Francisco's seedy side. Magnum Force, by comparison, was largely bright and sunny. In The Enforcer, Harry pursues leads through massage parlours, porn shoots and bombed-out buildings. The Enforcer is quite funny in parts too, when it's not being cruel. The Mighty White, Seven Point Suppository, Personnel's for Assholes lines, for instance. Even the Larry Dickman riff at Tiffany's Massage Parlour managed to make your podcast host chuckle after repeated viewings. Tiffany's. Like the sign says. My name is Larry Dickman. My brother was here last week, tall fella, balding. Remember him well. Has a gold tooth right in front. That's him. <laughs> you know what I bet you'd like? I bet you'd like to learn the love tussle. Oh, gee, that sounds swell. You are left, though, with an emboldened Harry. Not content to hide his thinking beyond the rolling of his eyes in the first film. And that's a shame. Richard Schickel, Clint's authorised biographer, contends the movie belongs to a short period in Eastwood's career where he was happy to ham it up and happy to laugh at his screen persona. The years 1976 to 1980 offered broad comic variations on his screen characterisations and should almost be received in this meta light. Quote, Story is not the Enforcer's main line of business. Humorous self-awareness is. Nice save, Richard. But when looking at the movie in context of the Dirty Harry films, the Enforcer is more than a little lacking. you got to be kidding. Maxwell! Can your heart stand the shocking fact? Well, Walt, I've got a little bit of a history here of the background to the film, if you would uh, like me to tell you how it all came about. Absolutely. Well, after Magnum Force, um, Clint, uh, by all records, thought that the character of Harry and, uh, you know, Harry had been exhausted and well and truly done and was a bit reluctant to uh, to do a third one. He thought both both sides of the... The fascist argument had been done. You've got Dirty Harry saying he's too far to the right. And then, whoa, 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 Magnum Force, you know, hold it up a bit. Harry's not that bad. <laughs> so Harry <laughs> East, Clinton sort of thought it was over. But, of course, as you were talking about before, Warner's thought, well, couldn't we just make Harry a normal cop, you know, in a normal cop sort of movie, which is what The Enforcer was, isn't it? 
It is. You know, he is, um, it, you know, and obviously the first Dirty Harry, there are those elements of him being a really good cop, but it's also obviously a lot of fiction. But when you get to the Enforcer, he's really kind of believable in a lot of ways that you could see him coming to your house to interview you about a crime. <laughs> and he he has a lot of... Uh, there are just a lot of great elements to, to Dirty Harry. And I don't think I've mentioned yet, Dirty Harry is one of my favorite characters of any series of all time. So I'm really biased when I talk about him. But That's I, good. That's that's very positive considering, in my estimation, there's probably only two, maybe three good installments. But the first one just happens to be a masterpiece. So. It, it really <laughs> is. And, and the, you know, the acting's great. The chemistry among the actors is awesome. But... One of the things I like about Harry is he does stick it to the supervisors at every opportunity. (laughs) Some of his best lines are directed at his supervisors, and I I think that's hilarious. There's so many great lines like like that in this movie, but some critics sort of said it's just, oh, it's been done better. Those sort of barbs, his criticism of bozos with... uh, with their names emblazoned on brass plates and their desk, it's all been done better in the first two movies. That was some of the criticism of this, that Harry looks a bit too tired and it's a bit of a cliche, his, his uh, sniping with, um, with his authorities here. But I don't know, what do you think about that? Is this movie just a tired retread of the, of the first two? Not to me. Um, I, I think when you get a little bit later on in the fourth and definitely in the fifth installment... You, you feel that way. But I still think that I could watch the first three movies back to back and really enjoy all three of them and never really feel like I'm getting the same retreads yet. Four and five, yeah. I feel that way. You know, um, you, you start to get where you, you it's very predictable, very formulaic in a lot of ways. But uh, and And also, I mean, they start high. When you start with... Harry carrying a 44 Magnum, there's not a whole lot, you know, up to go. <laughs> so, you know, you can't carry a cannon. There's Law's rockets, <laughs> Lars rockets we see in this movie, though. <laughs> yes, that's true. That, that is a step up. <laughs> but, a bit James um, Bond, as they say. <laughs> it is. It is. But no, it, when, when we're talking about the Enforcer, I, as, as a fan, I mean, again, I'm biased, but I don't quite feel like we're tired yet Um, right now i feel like harry may you know but that's part of the character the character is looking every day into the abyss of the human heart as a homicide detective so if that doesn't wear on you nothing in life will (laughs) there's a few new things in this i don't i don't know what happened between 71 and 76 but compare the bank robbery in the first movie where he gets you know, sort of faint praise from Bressler saying, the mayor said, well done. And here he does the same sort of thing with the car into the liquor store and it's all about excessive force. And now the <laughs> right. cops are really into the image. I suppose it's just you've had five years of people talking about the pigs and and the counter, you know, the, the 60s generation that the cops are really concerned now about the image. And that's that comes up a few times in this, in The Enforcer. It does. I, I think that, the United States, the world, but the United States was going through a lot of change at that point. Uh, we're now between 71 and 76. We're now post-Vietnam. 
We are in the sexual revolution. We're seeing a lot of change everywhere in the United States, uh, culturally and, and, and racially and otherwise. So I, I think that the sensitivity of a lot of things is a lot stronger in 76 than it would be in 71. So they probably had to be a little bit careful with Dirty Harry. Uh, Harry becomes even more of a dinosaur between 71 and 76. <laughs> so it, it really is something I think that you have to, they probably had to write a little bit carefully. You couldn't, in my, in my mind, you couldn't have a Dirty Harry today. Uh, not, not the same Dirty Harry. You know, the, you sure couldn't have the interview before the board and, <laughs> you know, him uh, talking to, uh, I can't remember the lady's name, but when he says, Mrs. Gray, um, Mrs. Gray, he <laughs> says, Mrs. Gray propositions me. I mean, he would be <laughs> out on his ass so fast <laughs> that he wouldn't even know what hit him. Uh, and even in 76, that was probably getting a little, little touchy. So we'll talk uh, about it again when we get to that scene in the audio commentary, yeah. but it's a bit unbelievable that he's just been, what's his name? Bradford Dillman. Uh, McKay. McKay's giving him crap. Like, do you know how much you cost the city with the blah, 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 blah. You're a dinosaur. Your ideas don't cut it or whatever. And then why would they then give him the position of going into the you know, personnel? If they're concerned about image, don't let Harry anywhere near that interview room. Don't let him choose, choose the cops. So I thought that was a bit oh of a, gosh, bit no. of a failure yeah. on the screenplay of it. A bit unbelievable. I, I agree. And I think that's the only way they could kind of wedge him into that partnership with Tyne Daly that way. Um, and at least, yeah, you know, right. the, the way they wanted to, but no, he would not have gone to personnel. He probably would have gone to either a training job or the, the motor pool or something <laughs> like that. Well, missing They'd put persons. him somewhere that he did not want it. Missing persons. Yeah. Yeah. So, somewhere where he just disappeared behind a desk for five years until he retired. <laughs> Anyway, um, back to a bit of the background. Warner Brothers, um, even without Clinton knowing, had hired veteran screenwriter writer Sterling Siliphant. Um, he was more famous as a, uh, an adapter of novels than an original screenwriter. He um, did the screenplays for Heat of the Night, Village of the Damned, Towering Inferno, and Poseidon, amongst many other things. And I always loved seeing his name appear in the credits, Walt Sterling Siliphant. Because what a name, huh? It either sounds... That's a great Hollywood name, isn't it? Yeah. Well, to my mind, it either sounds like an, you know, an upper-crust home county's British accent or, I don't know, like a southern, a southern gentleman, Walt, like yourself or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm a... Qualifies as a southern gentleman, but yes, thank you for the... Uh, the vote of confidence. So Anyway, Siliphant submitted a script to Warners called Harry and More, partnering Harry with a female inspector. In this first draft, More was actually Asian-American, and the partners struck up a romance. Eastwood found out about the script and liked it all except, guess what, for the romance part. Enter into the story two Bay Area filmmakers, Gail Hickman and S.W. Shaw, who, finding inspiration in the Patty Hearst story and also the Manson cult, composed a script called Moving Target and left it at the Hog's Breath Inn that Clint owned in Carmel, where he lives, and the script actually got to him. 
Clint then forwarded it on to Silliphant, so the older writer could combine the action of their of the student script with his own Harry and Moore. Yeah, so that's why sometimes I feel the movie doesn't know what does it straddle the action terrorist part with the uh, with the fish out of like the the combining of uh, the the female partner with Harry, but. Um, you, do you think it navigates that difference well, Walt? Can you tell that it's can you tell that it's one streamlined script, or is it really evident that that's there's two sort of competing elements to the the, the screenplay? Or, and does I, it matter? <laughs> okay, I'll answer that one first. No, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> I, I think that as it ties together, that it it comes together pretty well. It comes together well enough for what it is for a dirty Harry movie. You can't, and you can tell that it was written almost by two different groups of people who weren't really communicating. It was almost like they said, you write the terrorism part, you write the dirty Harry part. And so you, you have those, um, I, I like what you said, kind of the competing storylines there. And it, it is, uh, interesting the way they did that, but yeah, you, you can tell, you can tell that. And, I think now hearing that explanation from you, I understand why they earlier in the film, they don't fit together very well, but towards the end, you, you see where the tie-ins are, but uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And yeah, I agree with you. I think it can be a little, a little clunky and off-putting at, at a couple of points where you just can't figure out what exactly is going on and how it all comes together. To remove that clunkiness, Dean Reisner, who polished up the first Dirty Harry, was called in for a quick uh, polish of the script, including a retitling, The Enforcer. Uh, In 1980, subsequent to the release, a writer sued Clint Eastwood and Warner Brothers for plagiarism, accusing them of taking the title of their movie. Um, But Eastwood said, no, no, we just liked the name The Enforcer, which was an old... Warner Brothers Bogart movie. Now, I don't know about uh, in the US, Walt, but doesn't the enforcer usually mean like a mafia's goon or a heavy, um, like some private person that, you know, some thug rather than law enforcement? Is the name, is Harry, Harry, the trailer tells us Harry is the enforcer. Does it just mean enforcing the law? Is it a good title? In retrospect, well, again, looking at it through with 2020 eyes, yeah, it's good. It's good. But yeah, I, I think that you're right. It, it does give that uh, sense of um, someone who is a little bit above the law or beyond the law or uh, someone who's just a, a, a tough and maybe not somebody who is a police officer enforcing the law. So, Which in some ways kind of fits that Dirty Harry persona, I guess. Because he is a little bit of a vigilante. He, yeah. He works outside the rules. I think I would have preferred Moving Target or even Harry and more. <laughs> the Enforcer. Yeah. I like that Moving Target. That's yeah. that's a really... That would have been a cool title. It sounds a bit B-grade Chuck Norris, but I, I really like it. I prefer it to The Enforcer, which... And coming so soon after Magnum Force, Enforcer, I don't know. Uh, yeah. A bit of pedantry on my behalf. Walt, not a big issue. There's bigger problems. No, but I agree with you. It doesn't flow well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I see why you'd have a problem with it. Uh, Clint himself 
thought he was too busy on the post-production of The Outlaw Josie Wales. Good on him for realising this. It was well worth the time that he took that great movie seriously, and he gave directing duties over to James Fargo. Uh, First-time director, he'd been the assistant director on many of Clint's movies since Joe Kidd a few years earlier. Clint said, I'll tell you what to do, and you get credit for it, allegedly. Um, Before teaming up with Clint, James had also done Jaws, Jewel, and Sugarland Express, some of uh, Spielberg's early movies, I think as a assistant director or a set decorator or something. He ended up doing one of the, the eight movies with Clint as well, but I don't think he's done much else, has he, Walt? No, yeah, I was just looking through IMDb as well, and it looks like most of his work is uh, is going to be on Clint Eastwood movies. And he was the production manager on Jaws. Yeah. And that had to be a, a difficult job. So <laughs> he, he's obviously a very, very well-qualified Hollywood executive. So I can see why they tapped him for this one. Yeah, having to wrangle that. What was his name? Bruce the Shark? <laughs> Bruce the Shark, yeah, that never seemed to work right. and Didn't seem to act right, being... just like Clint, <laughs> to his critics, <laughs> yeah. Clint, Clint can't act right, so Fargo would have been pretty, <laughs> can't act at all, so Fargo would have been pretty good at that, yeah. Well, and he was the second unit director on both The Outlaw Josie Wales and High Plains Drifter, so he'd had plenty of time directing, Yeah, and that that had to be appealing to, uh, to Clint uh, as well, so... Um, probably a good choice. And I suppose when you haven't really had the main reins, the du- main directing reins, first time director, you can either go way, either go, you can go either way as being really, really good and lean and get things done, or you can be indecisive and sort of not know what to do. So yeah, I think in the end, the decision worked okay. Um, well, we, we had a guest on the wilder ride um, in season one who is a working actor, and he was actually in Sully, a Clint Eastwood-directed movie, and he played the part of the drunk in the bar who was talking to Sully, and he came in, he's like, oh, yeah, let us buy you a drink. Oh, yeah. He said that, yeah, and so he said that one of the other actors didn't come prepared, and he said that is the bane of Clint Eastwood's existence. If you come not prepared, he will murder you in, in front of everyone. So I would imagine that he knew James Fargo was coming to work every day prepared and he knew what he was doing and with all of his other experience knew that he brought a lot of talent to the table. So I'm sure when Clint picked him, there there was a lot behind that. It wasn't just, hey, who can I manipulate? But this would be somebody who really was a high quality Hollywood uh, director and producer who could work with Clint but also handle uh, the the toughness of the job. Walt, here are some alternative titles of The Enforcer around the world, and maybe you might find one you prefer to The Enforcer. <laughs> in, in Austria, it was known as The Relentless. In Denmark, Dirty Harry cleans up. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> in the Scandinavian territories, it was known as The Hard Hunt. The Hard Hunt. The French one was... Oh, I love trying to butcher French pronunciation. Sorry. The inspector de renoncer jamais. The inspector never gives up. <laughs> and maybe 
Maybe the most baffling in Turkey was called Unforgiving Man. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think I like Dirty Harry Cleans Up. <laughs> but um, Dirty Harry Cleans Up is great. That's yeah. uh that's and it's interesting that all of them, well, several of them seem to be uh, more in the line of him pursuing people and being relentless. That's right. Um, where it's you know the enforcer in America. Um, yeah, I, I would have I, I would have liked a title somewhere along the lines of those other titles, um, but. You know, now we've had it since 1976 as the Enforcer, so um, that seems natural. But yeah, they could have probably named it a little bit better, and I like the the direction that those other titles were going. And here's what the blurb of the official novelization, like the the little summary of the uh, the movie, it says: Frightened officials start cracking down on suspected political militants, but Harry Callahan knows a heist when he sees it. These are hoods, and the only cause they're fighting for is the money. <laughs> oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, because the biggest, the biggest flaw of this movie in my eyes, Walt, and I'm not singular in saying it, is the bad guys. They're just nothing. Don't you think, in this movie? Oh, I would agree. They, yeah. are, they are merely fodder for Dirty Harry. That that is it. They're there for one reason, and that is to be blown away by Dirty Harry. I think we could forgive all the other criticisms, even if they're not true about Clint looking tired and just retreading the first movie, because the the part with Tyne Daly is so strong. I wish that had been developed more. And because the villains are nothing, because you have to really concentrate on the plot, because that's all there is, and the bits when they're on screen by themselves before Harry enters the frame, it's just... Apart from maybe the scene where they, they kidnap the mayor for a little bit. It's like you have to oh, really yeah. pay attention to the plot because the villains aren't any good. And you realize that just there's nothing there. There's nothing to these guys. I read the novelization yeah. trying to see if there's a bit of background and not not really to this to these characters. Yeah, no, they're they're pretty vapid and empty. There really is not a whole lot to them. All right. The movie was a big success, Walt, um, even more than Magnum. Um, the thing about the Dirty Harry series that you said is your favourite um, is that each each instalment moved uh, earned more and more and more until the Deadpool, which pretty much barely broke even. Ooh, yeah, that, <laughs> that was bad. Yeah. So, yeah, did you have a favourite scene in the movie, Walt? Uh, I, I still think that scene where they they have the panel um, interviewing Tyne Daly <laughs> and his interaction with Mrs. Gray is is great, and the reaction of the two other cops in there, it, you know, when Harry starts talking, they're just like, you know, the one guy puts his head on the pencil, and he's like, oh crap, here we go, <laughs> you know, and, and and the reaction when he when he says. Mrs. Gray propositions me, and for the 20, Shetland and Pony, the Shetland <laughs> Pony, and Time Daly's face. Yeah, when he says that, and she starts busting out laughing, and she's trying to keep her composure, says so much about her, what her character is going to be like, 
and where they're going. And so I really like that whole scene and the way it plays out. The fact that Harry's late and they're like, where have you been? You know, and he's like, ah, you know, this is all BS anyway. Just that whole scene really sets the tone for the rest of the movie, the relationship between he and Tyne Daly, you kind of know you're not seeing the last of her. Uh, so, it, and it really is Dirty Harry at his best. It's, you know, very similar to the scene um, in, I think it's in the original where he's in the elevator and he says, you know, you're just like dog crap that I wipe yeah, off yeah. my foot. You know, <laughs> it, it's that classic Dirty Harry where it is, I set the rules. My rules are the right rules. I don't care what everybody else says. I'm Dirty Harry. So that, I think, is my favorite scene. How about you? Do you have a favorite scene? Well, I think you've talked me into that scene as well, Walt. Um, <laughs> I was going to say I really appreciate the uh, the barbershop, the Mustafa scene. Yes, um, that's a great scene. And it's just awesome tan- scene. Yeah, and it's just tantalizingly written at the end where he goes, where do I know you from? You don't. And as a viewer, as a loyal viewer of the series, you think, oh, he is the bank robber, yeah? Sort of come good. or well, he's a militant, right? but yeah. <laughs> and Mustafa's the only one with real any real integrity in the movie. Like, yeah. And these black militants are, I don't know, they're really in for their cause, as misguided as it might be, but there's no real intimation that they're particularly violent or anything compared to the uh, the nutjob whiteies. Um and yeah, Mustafa, I just really, I really like that scene between him and, and Harry and Harry's sort of saying <laughs> robbery, you know, be very interested in these artifacts you've got here from the Sheraton or whatever. So <laughs> there's a, yeah. yeah, right. Which is so stupid because that's like, you know, yeah. it's such a minor thing versus <laughs> ripping off military grade explosives and missiles. And you're going to run Mustafa in for, you know, stealing something from the Holiday Inn. I mean, give me a break. But um, but I, I thought that that was a, a great scene. And, you know, Albert Popwell is in all five of the, or at least the first four yeah. of the Dirty Harry movies, playing different characters in each one. So it is really, uh, it's, it's kind of a funny line when he says, where do I, you know, do I know you from somewhere? And he says, no, but he's been in all three of those movies so far. So, um, so kind of cool. And I, and I do like the chemistry between those two actors. I make up names for things. For instance, you are Cold Bold Callahan with his great big 44. Every other cop in this city is satisfied with a 38 or 357. What do you have to carry that cannon for? So I hear what I aim at, that's why. 357 is a good weapon, but I've seen 38s careen off windshields. No good in a city like this. I see. So it's, um, it's for the penetration. Does everything have a sexual connotation with you? Only sometimes. You really are a dirty bastard. The dirtiest. It's a war, isn't it? I guess I never really understood that. <clears throat> what makes a man crazy enough to join the cops? You find out, you let me know, huh? 
Well, Walt, 1976 is the year the Enforcer came out. Uh, I think you were saying you were eight years old on that year. Do you remember anything about the year in particular? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was the bicentennial for the United States, and so everything was red, white, and blue. Uh, Of course, uh, every movie and TV show had references to the... Uh, to the Bicentennial, and there were these great commercials with a bald eagle on it, um, you know, <laughs> encouraging everybody to you know, get out there and celebrate the 4th of July, and uh, a lot of history. I, I remember in uh, in school there just being a lot of uh, emphasis on the founding fathers of the country and the writing of the Constitution, so it was a huge year. I mean, it was big. And I actually still have a couple of silver dollars that were minted in 1976, and they have a special bicentennial um, stamping on them. So uh, it was a big deal. I mean, it was a very big deal in the United States. Um, I've got a list here of the top 20 movies, Walt. You know, the, do, you have, do you have a guess what the first big movie was in 76? It wasn't quite Silver Streak, but um, that was close. <laughs> Any Let's guesses see. for number one? <laughs> For number one, you're talking box office? Yeah, um, that's right, yeah. Gosh, would it be... Let's see, Rocky came out in 77, I think. 76, Rocky. Okay, oh, great, okay. So I knew that had to... It, it was either 76 or 77. Okay, good, good guess. Roughly, <laughs> roughly 120 million of those silver dollars you had. In. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. It's pretty good. Number two was something called To Fly. Does that ring any bells to you? Wow, no, I don't I don't remember that one. Move along, A Star Is Born. Yes, that was huge. How many times are they gonna remake that? Number four was the King Kong remake, which I've never seen. Oh yeah, that that was great. Yeah, I remember that one vividly. Doesn't sound great. It was okay, was it? <laughs> um so who was in that one? Do you oh, know I off the top of it sounds like um, the sort of movie it would have Bruce Dern in it or... Um... Probably, yeah. No, I, I, if, if it's the King Kong I'm thinking about, uh, it was actually really good. Um, it, it was... Uh, it has to be. That has to be the one I'm thinking of. Because me and my brother saw it as kids, and it was the first time they had remade a King Kong in decades. So um, I'm just looking it up on IMDb here. And so it had to be, yeah, that's the one. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just looking it up here. And the, the poster for it, I always remember being great because a jet, a military jet was trying to, to uh, uh, shoot King Kong off of the World Trade Center. And Kong oh. has one foot on the North Tower, one foot on the South Tower. And he, he's, he's grabbed one of the military jets. And so it was... Yeah, that was a huge, huge movie. Jeff Bridges starred in it. Charles oh, wow. Grodin was in it. Jessica Lange, John Randolph. Uh, that was a huge movie. Yeah, I remember that vividly. Does it say what film studio it was? Because in my part of the world, I've always seen it in your $2 DVD uh, bins. with. Uh, probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Who... Was the studio Jeff Bridges? Yeah, Jeff Bridges, star uh, of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. With our own that's right. Story. Yep, that's yeah, a great, great movie. Great movie. And I am not seeing who the 
Uh, I think that speaks volumes, Walt. <laughs> yes, Number five. It does. Number five was Silver Streak. $51 million coming yeah. out December the 3rd, yeah. Great movie. Uh, Gene Wilder uh, at his best. I mean, it, it is a fantastic movie. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend seeing Silver Streak. I wish someone would uh, devote some sort of a podcast or something to it. But yes, I know. That'll never happen. We we were actually in production for that when we had some things kind of go sideways uh, personally, and and then COVID hit, and so the we Chinese may take a stab virus. at that next year. Yeah, the Chinese virus. <laughs> we may take China. a stab at that next year, but it, it's a great movie. So I, I if if you've never seen it, definitely see Silver Street. And please, everyone, listen to The Wilder Ride. That's right. Minute-by-minute minute recapture of Blazing Saddles, one of my all-time favorite podcasts and movies. Number six, Walt, was All the President's Men. Yes. Don't have to, ling- don't have to linger on that. Number seven was The Omen, which I love. Oh, yeah, great movie. Did you see that in the cinema at the time, or was it too, you too, was it too scary and I you was too young? I was too young for <laughs> that. I think I saw it on TV about two or three years later. No worries. Coming in after the omen, number eight was ding 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 the enforcer with forty six million dollars. Number eight, highest earner of nineteen seventy six. Wow, coming below the enforcer, just a little bit less, three million dollars less was Midway. Oh yeah, still one of my favorite war movies. How does it stack up with Torah, Torah, Torah? Um, they are right there together with me. Mm. And um, I remember seeing Midway in the theater. I must have gone to tons of movies that year because I've seen just about all these. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 and it is one of the most accurate, historically accurate movies out there on World War II, particularly on the, the, Mid, the Battle of Midway, which was a huge turning point in World War II in the Pacific. And one of the people profiled in it is uh, a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Gay, he was shot down and survived, but he was from the town I grew up in, Marietta, Georgia. So we knew all about him. I've heard him speak several times. He was a fantastic guy. So, um, yeah, and, and that, that version of Midway is definitely worth seeing. So is Tora, Tora, Tora. So two great movies. Fantastic. And coming at number 10 is a movie, as an Australian, I always hear about, particularly in podcasts, uh, The Bad News Bears. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I saw The Bad News Bears in the theater when I was a kid. I've actually been by the uh, the ballpark where they shot it out in California. And oh, wow. it is a – don't let your kids see it until they're like 14 well, or 15. It, it's I a kind of raunchy trailer. 70s movie. <laughs> I looked at the trailer and there's like a young kid saying, oh my God, look who's on our team. There's bleep, 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 expletives, all the racial epithets. And, oh God. But oh, it made you me have, think. <laughs> oh, racism, misogyny. It's the worst of the 70s, but it is an entertaining movie. I couldn't help but think of the Harry hates them all when I heard that little, poor little kid mouth all oh, these racist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's it. Coming below the bat. Oh. I didn't actually take note of what was 11, 12, and 13, but at number 16 is The Outlaw Josie Wales. Yeah. So I'm very very disappointed the enforcer, the popcorn Clint came out, came above the, uh, you know, the artistic Clint, which is, but that often happens. Number 17 was Carrie. 
Number 18 was Logan's Run. And <laughs> yeah. 19 was Network, featuring Australia's own uh, Peter Finch. Honourable mentions also, but I don't think they're in the top 50 even, were Assault on Precinct 13, uh, The Shootist, Marathon Man. I forgot Taxi Driver, sorry, was 15th, just before Outlaw Jesse Wells. Um, obviously, in March, Star Wars began filming, wasn't released, but began filming in Tunisia in March of 76. And in September, the first show, uh, episode of The Muppet Show was broadcast. Wow. I wonder if Clint sat down to watch that. Oh, I'm sure he did. That was huge here. So everybody wanted to watch it and every star wanted to be on. So I'm sure Clint was well aware of the Muppets. Wow, that's a heck of a list. That's a big year. And also in Filmland, we had, unfortunately, the deaths of Lee J. Cobb, who starred with Clint in Coogan's Bluff, the tragic murder of Selminio, Mm. Um, old timers Howard Hughes and Fritz Lang also died. On positive, we had the births of. <laughs> oh, I'm scraping the barrel here, but January we had Michael Pena. <laughs> oh yeah, the remake of Chips and, and other yeah. things. He was he was born. Um, Baby Spice was born in February. Oh. In February, Rashida Jones. In March, Reese Witherspoon. In Ireland, May Colin Farrell. July, Fred Savage. So these are all younger people than you, Walt. Benedict they, Cumberbatch. They are. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've actually met Benedict Cumberbatch. Great guy. Oh, really? Fantastic wow. actor. Just an amazing guy. I met him on the set of Star Trek Into Darkness. And oh. I, I have not been... I, I I'm, <laughs> have never been as impressed with an actor as I was with Benedict Cumberbatch. He is fantastic, and of course, he was great as uh, as Sherlock Holmes. But oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, so uh, he's just one of my favorite actors. My favorite double birth is October the third, uh, which was Stifler. Sorry, Sean William Scott and Ryan Re- Ryan Reynolds, both born on the third of October. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, he's awesome. Uh, moving around the world into music, in April we had Frampton Comes Alive, uh, which was number one for three months, Walt. I hope that wasn't a, f- a constant uh, play at your household as a kid when you grew up. Not at my house, but the uh, people who live next door played it all the time. And uh, yeah, I was pretty tired of it by the time they, they moved on to something else. So. Also in April, the Ramones released their first album, and in August, they performed their first live set at CBG, CBGB's in New York. Um, Paul McCartney did Wings Over America tour, the f- last time he'd performed in the U.S. since the Beatles' last concert in 1966. Uh, coincidentally enough, at Candlestick Park, which is featured in The Enforcer. Yeah, yes, it sure is. I'll reel off quickly some singles. Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D. Um, Dreamweaver by Gary Wright. A song I know only from being on film soundtracks in the last 20 years rather than actually being a song. <laughs> right. Casey and the Sunshine Band, Shake, Shake, Shake Your Booty. And that's the way I like it. Over <laughs> in the UK. Also, Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols. Convoy by C.W. McCall. Oh, yes. I remember that very well. Welcome Back theme from Welcome Back, Cotter. 
Um, the Boys Are Back in Town by Thin Lizzy and Rock and Roll All Night by Kiss. Yeah, good year for music. Good and bad. Don't forget Frampton, underlying it all. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we always have to get the, the bad with the good, don't we? <laughs> uh, ACDC's first international release, High Voltage, came out. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. Uh, Wonder announced that he had signed a $13 million contract with Motown Records. I haven't tracked if that's true, but $13 million that's in crazy. 1976. Yeah, unbelievable. I'm still waiting to sign that now for me. <laughs> you think I was picking on you? Yes. It's nothing personal. Right. I just don't think you know what we do for a living in Homicide. I'll find out. I hope you don't find out the hard way. Uh, the Eagles released their greatest hits, uh, became the first album, the first compilation album certified platinum of $1 million sales. Um, horrible things around the world. We had the earthquake in northeast Italy, um, making 100,000 people homeless, and also the great Tangshan earthquake in China, July, apparently killing quarter of a million people, Walt. I, I I could not believe that. I had to reread and I hadn't made a mistake, but in a number of hours, yeah, unbelievable. I remember that, but I, di- I didn't remember that it was that, that many people. That's horrifying. Um, also, the famous um, Chowchilla kidnapping. Have you heard of that, Walt? I've heard of it, but I don't remember what that was. It was a school bus, um, a pair of uh, wealthy or a trio of wealthy sort of college rich dropouts, um, Kidnaps some kids on a school bus, taking inspiration, unfortunately, from the first Dirty Harry film, and then also sort of digging the box. They cut like a channel, I think, in a small quarry and and filled and yeah, sort of partially submerged yes, the bus. I remember that. Yeah. Ugh. Also, bad news: the chimpanzee was first ever placed on the list of endangered species, and although the the numbers have stabilized a little bit. I think they're still, unfortunately, still on that list of endangered species, along with the orangutan. Yeah, I know we were cutting wood as fast as we can and just took out their uh, their habitats in a lot of places and also took a lot of them into captivity, which they don't really jibe with very well sometimes. Hmm. Also, some more negative things. I'll just read them out to put in context. If you were sitting down watching the enforcer from the cinema, you'd have like any year of the any year of history, you have good and and bad things to think about. But uh, in April, the king of Cambodia was forced to resign by the Khmer Rouge and placed under house arrest. The military dictatorship came to power in Argentina. East Timor was declared a province of Indonesia, having been annexed the year before. Um, Palestinian militants hijacked a plane in Greece and took it to Uganda. Um, later, a few days later, the airborne rangers of Israel freed them. Some positive things. The UK and Iceland ended something called the Cod War. <laughs> wow, I think the deep, okay. The deep, fishing, the deep fishing of cod in that you know North Sea was obviously very contested. <laughs> That is interesting. That's a new one on me. April 25th, um, also Anzac Day in Australia, Portugal proclaimed its new constitution. Um, For the last 40 years, it had pretty much been an authoritarian regime like Spain, so that's a positive. 
Um, uh, in June, seashells gained independence from the UK. So that's pretty positive, but it's also a bit depressing that you're still getting decolonization into the, the mid-70s. Yeah, that's kind um, of crazy. And I know you were a guest on um, Heartbreak, Heartbreak Ridge Minute, Walt. Yes. Yeah, only a few years earlier, Grenada, or Grenada, had been uh, gained its independence from the UK. Um, inventions, January, nine, sorry, January 1976, South Africa gets TV for the first time. <laughs> really? Yeah. 1976? Yeah. Good grief. I looked into this and apparently it was more a, a matter of censorship or the, the right-wing, you know, government being, yeah, it would lead to licentious behaviour and immorality. So that's why it took so long. Um, first Concorde flight. Do you ever take a Concorde anywhere, Walt? I did not. I I don't... I think I saw a Concorde once, but I... Yeah, on the ground, on the tarmac, on or in the no, in it was, the sky. yeah, I was on the ground. Yeah, I wish I'd seen <laughs> it in the sky, but I was flying through New York, and they and one was sitting on the tarmac. So it's the only time I ever think I saw the Concorde. How about you? You ever get to ride? Never seen one. Never. I'd only flew between UK and uh, New York. Yeah, I, I believe that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. It's what made Band Aid possible, didn't it? In the eighties, or Live Aid. That's right. That's right. Because, yes, right. Phil Collins was able to be in both Philadelphia and um, and UK to perform. What, was it Elton John or The Who or something? I can't remember. I think it, well, maybe in both. Um, because I know several, yeah, several bands jumped on the uh, the Concord and were able to, to do concerts in both places. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. You don't give up, do you? Sometimes. Not you. What makes you think so? Woman's intuition. In July, Price Club, the predecessor of Costco, was founded. Do you have any Price Club? It was a like a membership only. Yeah, we've got. Um, we actually have three of them right near my house: Sam's Club, which is owned by Walmart, Costco, and then one called BJ's. I'm not really sure what their lineage <laughs> is, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so we've got uh, yeah we've got all three of those right in our area Arkham Price Club sounds pretty cool too but that was many years ago in June the CN Tower is built in Toronto the tallest land structure open to the public in the world in August the first laser printer was produced by IBM um, just solely for data centers it replaced the old dot matrix line printers and was capable of printing 200 pages or more a minute. Wow. In July, the first computer, the Apple one went on sale. The first Apple computer, the Apple one went on sale on the 1st of July, uh, priced at six, six, six and 66 cents. (laughs) (laughs) Their marketing team could have done better. They should have upped it a dollar or something. I suppose they were smart to not release it on the 4th of July, the 1st of July, at least the cover, you know, wouldn't be buried. That's true. Yeah. VHS was first um, sold, you know, VCR in Japan, 1976. Um, Just very quickly, when it comes to the law in America, you have Greg versus Georgia. The Supreme Court rules that the death penalty is not 
inherently cruel and unusual. Um, for a few years there, I think in the 70s, it was placed on hold. Is that right? Like for a year or two? There are still some states that do not have it. And oddly, New York, I believe, does and California does. And they're two of our more liberal states. But uh, there still are a few states that don't have it. And then you have Texas that uses it very, very liberally. And and I live in Georgia. We, we have had... Um, oh, yeah, Greg versus and, Georgia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was not living here when that case was heard. But, uh, yeah, we we have had some... We, we regularly, probably four or five times a year, will have executions. And even among conservatives, it's, it's still a little touchy subject. But, um, yeah, so anyway, yes, it's not cruel and unusual, apparently. Yeah. Oh, sorry, just looking up. It says here there was a, a case called Furman versus Georgia as well, 72, which said it was cruel. So for a few years there it was. I wonder if – is that why Charles Manson never went – remember was Charles Manson? That is. Okay, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, Manson was on death row, and it was overturned. And my understanding is that everybody on death row basically got a reprieve. And then when it was reinstated, you had to go through and be convicted – after that, to be put on death row. That's my understanding. I may be totally wrong. But that is why Manson did not receive the death penalty. Is it rational to assume that Dirty Harry would approve the death penalty, considering he uses it often himself? Dirty Harry would be a big proponent of the death penalty, I would think. Yeah. Sorry, that probably was a stupid question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not really. I mean... I. You know, Harry's an interesting character, but I would think that he would be he would be in favor of the death penalty. And uh, so he probably put a lot of people on death row. You better have those files open, you pencil-pushing son of a bitch. I suppose before I started mentioning all these things from 1976, I should have said, at the end of each one, well, tell me how it relates to Dirty Harry. Right. <laughs> <Sure> <laughs> There are quite a few that do, yeah, quite a few. Um, In October, the Copyright Act in America was extended um, pretty much at the behest of Disney for a further 20 years. I think that's 90 years of the author's life plus. Is that right? Yeah, anyway, something like that. In my neck of the woods, as L. Roker would say, random breath testing was first introduced in Victoria. I think that may have been a world first, random breath testing for alcohol. In 76, also in September in Australia, cigarette and tobacco advertising was banned on TV and radio, but obviously still allowed in paper and on billboards and probably in movies as well. Yeah. Sometimes Australia is ahead of the world and sometimes they're behind, but I think in what, I've, what I can tell, this was quite early in the world. Um, US politics, of course, Jimmy Carter became the first candidate from the Deep South to win since the Civil War. And probably the last the last Democrat to win in Georgia except for Biden, right? Is that hot? Um, uh, Bill Clinton won oh, okay. in Georgia, uh, but that was the last one until now. Do you find the term Deep South funny, poetic? Is it annoying? The deep, are you in the... The top south, or what's Georgia? <laughs> we're in the deep south. Yeah, we're 
Florida is south of us, but you'd probably there are areas of Georgia that don't get much more deep south than than here. And my family, my mom's side of the family, is all from South Georgia, and um, a lot of hardcore rednecks <laughs> in South Georgia. So yeah, I mean. The Dukes of Hazard, if you remember that show. I don't know if you've ever seen it in Australia. Yeah, I think my mum loved that. I know it more for the 2000s remake with uh, Ashley oh, Simpson or whatever. Oh, Je- right, Jesse terrible Simpson. remake. <laughs> so, but yeah, that was set in Georgia. Um, we are definitely we are definitely part of the Deep South. What do you got? Get the bastards? Well, Maya's family is loaded. They can afford it. But the people who were killed, or isn't that against the law anymore? What you're telling me is anyone who's got balls enough to grab a hostage, he'll do it and can walk right away from it. Bobby Maxwell, Captain McKay speaking. We have your money. The plane is waiting for you at the airport. We have exceeded all your demands to release the mayor. The pilot of this helicopter will fly you and your men. Um, also, embarrassingly for the UK, <laughs> they had to ask the International Monetary Fund for a bailout, like there were any other banana republic, yes, $2.3 billion. Right. Very depressing. Uh, for them, I guess, for their, their their sense of well-being and everything, they had to call in the, the body that normally gives monies to you know El Salvador and so forth. Yeah. Well, and being that they were at one time arguably the dominant power in the world, having to turn around and do that, that is that is pretty bad. Um, we also had Mao Zedong died. Good riddance. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, oh, in relation to World War II, um, Montgomery died, you know, the... Um, oh, right, General Montgomery. Yeah. Bernard, yep. And the only other thing for 1976 I thought of interest was Ernesto Miranda died. The subject oh. of the, the court case, Miranda, you know? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. We've covered it before, but his death was quite ironic in that the suspect who killed him was interviewed by the police, exercised his Miranda rights, didn't answer, and then slipped away and was never seen again. <laughs> that is crazy. Bit of irony there, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I remember memorizing the Miranda rights at one point in my life. So, for a class I had to take. So, oh, have you seen Richard Jewell? We spoke off. Um, we spoke off episode. You haven't seen no, it yet. No, I, I have not seen it yet. I that is, I, I've got to put that on my must watch list because I live in the Atlanta area. I remember uh, I was watching TV when the bombing happened. I've got friends who were there when it happened. I've actually talked to people who were wounded in the bombing uh, and uh, followed the whole thing. My dad was interviewed. He was um, working as head of security for uh, a company that manufactured the nails that were used in the bomb. So I've got all these ties to it, and I've never watched the movie. So I've got to – I don't know why I haven't. I've got to sit down and watch it. Wow. So why were they – why would the nails help determine the killer? What was the thing? What they were looking for was where were the nails sold? They were hoping to maybe even get to a store clerk who could say, "Oh yeah, we sold that to this guy." Uh, but also nailing it down to a region was helpful. 
uh, because it turned out that the nails were purchased uh, in the region where the guy lived, uh, who actually did the bombing. Uh, they were looking for anything that would get them to the bomber at that point. Right. Yeah, well, um, there's some really great performances in that movie, Walt, and um, obviously Kathy Bates <coughs> is great and everything, but um, just that, that Hauser guy, Paul... What, oh yeah, he's fantastic. Anyway, there's a scene where they, John Hamm, the FBI agent, calls him in and they want him to sort of sign away his Miranda rights, but pretending it's like a they're filming him. It's a little exercise. They want him to make a movie, so they say, end quotes. And then they go, why don't you read them? Why don't you waive your Miranda rights for real? And he goes, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, it's just Miranda rights pop, popping up in another Eastwood movie. It's quite fun. That's interesting. Yeah, well, and the Miranda rights, you know, in, in the United States, that is a, it, it is everywhere. If you get stopped, if there's any kind of questioning, they're going to read you your Miranda rights. It's important uh, in our jurisprudence to uh, understand those rights. So, huge case. Maybe not a bigger case, more influential case in U.S. history. Mm. Now, you know, as a result of that, Walt, I'm not an American citizen, but I still have the right not to like the enforcer. Do you acknowledge that right? I I acknowledge (laughs) that right. I don't understand why you would exercise that right. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, you do have that right. Absolutely. Absolutely. We we all, as as we say in America, we all have the right to be wrong. (laughs) With that in mind, I think I will I'll exercise my Miranda right not to like it, but we are now or soon going to watch the movie together and I'll form a judgment at the end of it. But at the moment I'm mixed. I sort of I really appreciate the the Tyne Daily partnering with Harry. That could have been a, a very good part of the screenplay that if they had followed, made that the basis made that the main thrust of the movie, but um just the villain I need a good villain and Scorpio's the best. Yeah, Scorpio is the Even best. Even the motor, the motor pool vigilante cops, David Soul, that was pretty good. Not as good, but here I just, I need a, I need a Joker, and this movie doesn't have one. And yeah, those are my thoughts at the moment. So, Walt, are you prepared to do an audio commentary with me sometime in the future? Absolutely, I, I am looking forward to it. Right. Well, many thanks for joining us, Walt. We'll catch you next time, everyone, on Dirty Harry Minute. Concern yourself. Callahan! Callahan! The chopper's here! Don't you want to? Right. Sunset of life, I'm swinging to the right. Waiting for the friends. Francisco Knight to come and smother me.
and mess across the land. Look at your hands, never done a day's work in your life. Forget elections, what about protection of society? Sunset of life, I'm swinging to the right. I know that Al's no longer on my side. Roughing up strangers shoots society's dangers. Don't need a silver stop into my chest. I lost my wife, but the silent majority. Maybe.